0: The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shamong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can embrace and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Learning to be measured, to be steady in our pace is a process that must take place in the body. When we strive to do things we are learning strife. When we strain we are learning strain. We must learn to move rhythmically, easily, to be undriven to flow. Study the waves wash study the way the waves wash onto the shore or the way things float out on a lake when a pebble splashes through the surface, moving without apparent effort. There is an organic pace to this. We, too, have an organic rhythm. Silence can help us feel it. When we sit quietly, we sense how long an interval of sitting is correct for us. When we practice steadily, we will also know how often to return to silence in any given day. In our culture, we do not trust time. We try to defy it, we steal time, kill time. We want to control the flow of events instead of trusting in a natural rhythm, instead of trusting that we can and will meet life as it happens. We attack life to defend against the mistrust we have of ourselves. In silence, we can learn to change this. We can give ourselves time, leaning into it, resting in it. When we do this, the pressure comes off and we give ourselves permission to feel and experience, because we are participating in our lives, not controlling them. Then like still ponds at early dawn, we reflect effortless effort. The pure sound of the bell summons us into the present moment. The timeless ring of truth is expressed in many different voices each one magnifying and illuminating the sacred. The clarity of its song resonates within us and calls us away from those things which often distract us. That which was, that which might be, to that which is. Good evening. Good evening, When the Buddha laid out a map to what we refer to often as enlightenment or a prescription for awakening to what we call our original nature, central to that prescription was the practice of what we call Zazen, seated meditation or has been coined today by those making millions of dollars off of it, mindfulness meditation. The practice of meditation is not trickery. Neither is it contrived, neither is it magical. It has nothing to do with effort to make ourselves more peaceful, more calm, more quiet, or to make ourselves into some kind of ideal or image of something sacred or mystical. It is at the same time both complex and the simple act of reconnecting with our natural rhythms, with the natural beat that resonates through all things pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now. And even though it is revealing right here, right now, we rarely experience it, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. And yet, the daily or regular experience of that rhythm is essential. In fact, as I tell my students often, practice as if your life depends on it, because it does, because it does. So the practice of meditation has to do with reconnecting. It has to do, as the writer's words suggest, calling us from those things that often distract us. And in the course of any given day, anyone's given day, even a Zen monk, millions of things distract us. The media distracts us. The weather, or at least our opinion about the weather, distracts us. Our desires distract us. Circumstances and situations we would rather not have show up distract us. We are regularly and repeatedly throughout the course of the day distracted. And then the sound of the bell rings, calling us to stop. Not just to stop, but to look, to see, to, as they say, smell the roses for a real reason a reason that, again, our life depends on. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are those making millions of dollars promoting the practice of mindfulness meditation. And in that promotion, they too reveal how science has caught up with the Buddha's teachings. 2,700 years ago, the Buddha spoke about the need to slow down and to develop the ability to see What is really so about ourselves and about our relationship with everything else and about everything else? In his own effort to practice this for nearly 10 years, he finally sat down underneath a Bodhi tree, and underneath the tree, he made a declaration. And it is similar to the declaration that Zen students who see their way all the way to priesthood make when they come to the monastery. The declaration that he made was, I will sit here and I will remain here and neither one of two things will happen. I will either die or I will wake up, but I will not move from this spot. I will not move until I wake up. And so he did. He practiced as if his life depended on it. And at that point he had realized that his life did depend on it because he had spent 10 years very much like every one of us myself included in this room searching and seeking and wanting answers or searching and seeking and wanting things other than what was or what could be constantly looking in the past or looking forward to the future believing that Only when I arrive there will something change in my life. After 10 years, something inside of him clicked, helping him to realize that the search is not the answer. That the journey has to do with the declaration, the resolve to sit as if my life depends on it. And this word sit is both literal and metaphoric in mindfulness living, which comes out of the practice of mindfulness meditation, there is this cultivation of awareness, an awareness that again is not so focused on yesterday or tomorrow, but completely on right here, right now. Why is that essential? It is essential because both science And the Buddha's teachings confirmed that life is never happening in our concepts of yesterday, neither is it happening in our beliefs about tomorrow. It is always happening right here, and 99.9% of the time we miss it. And maybe that is why we go through life so much dissatisfied, even when we get what we want. And if you take a moment, which is all part of the Zen training, to really examine that in your life, you will notice that in the course of your life, just as I noticed in the course of my life, we all have gotten what we wanted one time or another. I often use the example of remembering when I was eight years old, I was absolutely convinced that a red fire t- truck that shot water from it and had a siren would make my life perfect. You'll see. And I got that, I got it for Christmas, and my life was perfect for a few months. And then something else came along that I needed. And isn't that so? We all get what we want, but we're never really satisfied with what we have. The cultivation of awareness in the present moment opens us to, yes, an awareness of what is really so. because. The Life as it is happening here and now is so clouded by, again, our desires and wishes about life in the future and our regrets or disappointments about life in the past. And you can flip that around. That includes the good old days, which, you know, I have often entered into political discussions about the good old days. And having grown up in the 60s, you know, I had a lot of fun, but the 60s wasn't good for everyone. You see. So the good old days, just like the future that will bring everything to us, are both illusions and mechanisms of the mind to distract itself from here and now. And as the writer suggested, we distract ourselves from the present moment, always pursuing this ideal of what divine looks like. And in our pursuit of that ideal divine or ideal sacred, we cannot find it in ourselves. We cannot find it where it absolutely is pervading, everywhere we are, and so forth. Always distracting us from who we are, setting us up into this constant search for either who we are, or this constant belief that if I was more, or if I was better, or if I was different, that would be the key to my happiness. And we have all been more. We have had less and we have had more in life. We have all been better one way or the other. If you ever go to school and you get a grade on your test, you've been better. And we have all been different because if there's any lesson you and I learn at a very young age, is the first thing necessary to get through life is to be different than who we are. You know what I'm saying? So we've all strived for that one way or another. So 2,700 years ago, when the Buddha realized that the 10 years that he spent in search was valuable in one way, but absolutely invaluable in another, he sat, and he decided that the answers he was looking for would be found within himself and in this present moment of his life. And at the end of that sitting, which the story goes, took seven days, they all take seven days, at the end of that sitting, he awoke, And I remember the first time I read that part of the story. And it said that he had seen the morning star and was enlightened. And the morning star, I learned, was a code word for the sun. The sun was referred to as the morning star. And I immediately focused on the sun. I immediately began the discourse, the question, what was the sun doing that morning? What was so special about the sun that morning? But the truth of the matter is, that's all part of the illusion. It had nothing to do with the morning star. It had nothing to do with the sun. It was the same sun, the same star that had risen in the east for billions of years. What was different was the way the Buddha looked at it, was the way the Buddha held it, was the way the Buddha was aware of it. And so in the practice of mindfulness meditation, or zazen, or shikantaza, which is the Japanese word for just sitting. We cultivate the ground to see, first of all, ourselves and life when accomplished in a way that is probably only for the second time of our lives because I have always betted that we were born that way, that when we came into the world we saw clearly until adults messed us up. And so, for the second time in our life, possibly, we get to see, and this time, nothing is ever the same again, just as it wasn't for Buddha Shakyamuni 2,700 years ago. So, we are dealing with a ground of conditioning in mindfulness meditation. The difficulty in mindfulness meditation, or any form of meditation, that is, the difficulty to just stay In the meditation, even though we may be stationary in our seat, the mind is constantly wandering off in conversations, in uh, mental formations, in bodily distractions. This egocentric part of our consciousness that does not trust this now because it is designed to see it as threatening to the being, that part as well as does not trust that the being, him or herself, has any value to spend another minute with, i saying, is always taking us away from the moment, is always taking us to some other place or some other beingness. So the ground that we are cultivating has to do with what I call dropping anchor. It has to do with just sitting like just sit, just sit there. In Zen, we understand meditation to be sensual. As the writer suggested, it takes place in the body. And so we use the various senses to cultivate that awareness, to actually awaken it, because it's not something we get from meditation. It is something that reawakes in us, something inherent to us to us that we you know, get to happen through meditation practice. So that is essential in understanding this ground for practice tonight. It has to do with a willingness on the part of the practitioner, even for just a moment, to trust these words all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the happiness, all the joy, all the peace already exists within you. And that is the only place you will ever find it. And if you never find it there, you will never find it anywhere. You will never find it anywhere. So you are the Alpha and the Omega of your life, the beginning and the end. It is any serious spiritual journey person will tell you the journey is just like that. You go off onto this spiritual search, this spiritual journey, only to go full circle and end up back where you started because if you don't find it here, you will never find it there, no matter how beautiful and how serene and how quiet there is. As I started out, I mentioned that meditation is not trickery. It is not the activity of kind of like setting up something to happen it is effortless yet at the same time it is active in nature it doesn't deal it doesn't have to do with striving to become peaceful or striving to become more happy in fact any goal we set up for ourselves in the practice of it gets in the way gets in the way so when we meditate all goals are dropped all expectations are dropped. Often we bring to our meditation practice the very things that, again, function as obstacles to our cultivation, to our nurturing ourselves, and to our awakening. And those obstacles often language themselves as expectations. We expect, you know, people talk when they come to the monastery and start training, they talk about good meditations and bad meditations. Then they come in to see me privately, and they start to talk about that, and I hit them. (laughs) Then I remind them that there is no good meditation, there is no bad meditation, just like there is no good life and no bad life. There's just what's going on right here, right now, and that's what you need to see. But it is our very definitions of life which formulate our expectations of life that get in the way of our ever-awakening. I suspect that what happened for the young Buddha 2,700 years ago is that in that given moment something caused him to just let that all drop away. Maybe it was exhaustion, he hadn't eaten for seven days, hadn't drank water, hadn't gotten up from the lotus posture, hadn't laid down to sleep, who knows? No one knows. No one knows about his awakening any more than you will know about yours, but you will know it when it happens but what is certainly understood after centuries and centuries of handing down this process and well honing it and proving it to work, what is certainly understood is that any expectation we bring to it is the very obstacle that will prevent us from knowing it, from reconnecting with that natural Buddha nature or enlightened nature we all possess, but more accurately, We all are. So when we sit to meditate, we are doing just that, just sitting and meditating. To meditate is to just sit, to connect with the body's rhythm, which is the rhythm of the breath as it enters and exits the body, and to allow the senses to open up naturally so that we are hearing what is present, seeing what is present, tasting what is present, smelling what is present, feeling what is present, and so forth. And without judgment or criticism, we take a strict observer's role, just watching. As the ancients and masses would teach it, they would say, as if you are either too tired or too ill to do anything else. Just sitting, just watching, just observing. To the ear, that sounds simple. But after doing this for 38 years and training others to do it, I often enjoy telling the story of one particular case that came to the monastery when we were in Cinnaminson wanting to master meditation. And so I sent him into to the Zendo and said, okay, go in and sit down on that cushion. And he went in and he sat down. And I said, okay, so just sit there for now. Two moments went by and I heard, uh, what else? I said, just sit. A few more moments went by. Shouldn't I be sitting a certain way? No, just sit. And this went on for at least 15, 20 minutes until I finally said, there it is. There it is. If you're going to master meditation, you need to trust that body, that mind, that miraculous, enlightened being, and that comes only from just sitting and letting it do its work. So when we meditate, again, there is no trickery. There is no magic. If you come to the monastery and sign up for the Ango training starting in September, one of the first speeches you will hear me give you is, there is no magic here, and I am not a magician. You will get out of this training only and exactly what you put into it. You will bring either your Buddha nature to every practice or you will bring the obstacles or both sometimes and that's your meditation that day calling it good will not make it better calling it bad will not give you any more knowledge or wisdom than you already have so it has to do with this complete embracement of the moment whatever shows up while meditating is your meditation and Trusting this as well, that whatever shows up is what's supposed to show up. Whatever shows up is your teacher. Whatever shows up is the lesson of the day. So maybe some of you, when you came in here and found me sitting up here quietly in meditation, sat down and found yourself continuing in motion, maybe having a conversation with someone else, maybe reading something, maybe a little agitated, maybe anticipating, maybe wondering when he's gonna start, who knows? I don't really care, but that is your meditation, to look at that and ask yourself, where are you doing that anywhere else in your life? Because if you're doing it in a few moments of sitting on a cushion or in a chair, you're certainly doing it other places. So where are you always too anxious to pay attention, and why? Dogen Zenji, a Japanese Zen master who was responsible for setting up the Soto Zen schools, said that Zen, and when he used that term back then, he meant meditation, is the study of self. He went on to say, to study this self, we forget it. He went on to say, when we have completely forgotten it, we are enlightened by the marriott of things, meaning that wherever we go, we find our peace and contentment because we realize we are it. Through the dropping or forgetting of this preconceived idea of who I am, what I am, and what really matters in life, this me, myself, and I. So we sit, and you will hear in the process as I guide you through the meditation, That as you inhale, you are bringing the body to an awakened state. You are breathing in as if you are coming up. If you have a dog, you know what I mean. When it hears something, it comes to a complete upness, if you will. Cats will do that too. This in-breath is the coming up. The drawing in of my awareness to right here, right now. The exhale, which comes after a brief pause, is the release. For what I call settling in, dropping anchor. Breathing in, I am aware. Breathing out, I am aware and I am releasing any resistance or unnatural desire to somehow manipulate what is going on. The simple act of just sitting, just breathing, just observing the power of silence. What is going on in that process is we are silencing not only the mind, but the body as well. We are teaching it to stay. And all the great masters have said the same thing. The problem with you never seeing what's so is you don't stick around long enough. You don't stay. That's why we train dogs to stay, you see, so that they can see what we see and so forth. So it is the training of mind and body to settle down and just stay. Now, this in real mindfulness practice, which we may not have enough time to even touch upon tonight, this extends outward. What do I mean by that? Every other moment of my day when I'm not on the cushion is informed by that practice. In fact, it is not only informed, but I can learn to use the same techniques at the office, when at the computer, or in a meeting, or driving in bumper to bumper traffic, or when I'm in a hurry and the whole world seems to have slowed down, we can use the same techniques of seated meditation in our daily life, bringing this mindfulness practice to relieve ourselves of the distractions and the effects they have on us. And those effects are often stress and anxiety. And so The meditation cushion or seat is the place of training, is where we train ourselves. We train ourselves to awaken, to wake up, and to see more clearly, to experience life more directly without the concepts and the beliefs and the desires. And the more and more we readily practice on the cushion and in the chair, and most especially when we join a community of other practitioners and practice together, We become strengthened, we become more precise, things start to naturally happen just by showing up to the meditation and then staying in the meditation. Things change naturally. We don't have to contrive, we don't have to manipulate, we don't even have to manage. Just sit, just breathe, just observe. That is the complex yet simple miracle we call Zazen, or mindfulness meditation. Any questions? You all got that. Okay. So if you're holding on to anything, stop holding on to it. If you need to cover yourself because of the temperature, do that first. So that when we start doing this, you do not move. Do not have to move. So shake off whatever you need to shake off. Get into the seat ready to be in that seat for an extended period of time. ask you, even if you have been practicing a particular form of meditation, to just let that all go tonight, as if this is the first time, and whether you realize it or not, it is the first time you are meditating. Every time you take the cushion, it's the first time. And what we want to do is, whether in the chair or on a cushion, sit upright as, much, as comfortably as possible, so that our shoulders are square to the floor, and that both feet are flat on the floor so that we have this kind of grounded experience. And just gently close your eyes and allow your eyelids to just rest there. Let us just begin by becoming more aware of our body. Bring your awareness to your body, and kind of like scan it, kind of like observe it. A word which best describes meditation is intimacy. So everything we do when we are meditating is to be an intimate act. So without judgment, without criticism, just simply become aware of your body, how it feels, its particular shape, its height. See and feel your body in this moment. Continue by expanding your awareness now to include the sensation of sitting in a chair or on the cushion. Just notice that particular sensation of the chair or cushion against your buttocks, the back, your legs on the floor, your feet on the floor. And take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Keep your awareness in your body, in that place, in this now. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. As we continue the process, your inhalation should be exactly like that. Slowly and deep, mentally directing the breath downward into the area behind the navel. Pausing for a moment as if to shift gears and then releasing the breath, allowing it to just flow out naturally. And start again. Follow your breath as you inhale, deliberately mentally directing it downward into the area directly behind the navel, holding it there for a moment before you release. And follow it as it exhales. Deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. As you follow your breath, observe your awareness. You want to maintain it immediately in the area you occupy, no further than that space. Continue to scan your body as you breathe in and as you breathe out. becoming aware of any stressful parts of the body, anywhere where stress may be, sitting, strain in the lower back, the shoulders, the neck, facial muscles. Wherever you find it, with the next inhalation, imagine the breath breathing into that space, gently massaging that experience, and as you exhale, letting go as if you are too tired or too ill to do anything else. If you find yourself wandering in any way, distracted by a bodily sensation, a thought or mental formation, just notice it and start again. you're training mind just as an athlete trains body. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale relax. May you open your eyes? How was that for you? Awesome.
1: Wasn't allowed to say that.
0: You can say whatever you want, I don't care <laughs> <laughs> The simple yet complex Practice of just Sitting Just Staying Staying is a word you should not Take for granted because <coughs> Again, the more and more You practice, the more and more You become aware that In the course of every moment of our lives, this mind is all over the place, often referred to by some Zen teachers as monkey mind. It is one moment thinking about this, the next moment thinking about that, the next moment feeling that, and so forth. And so, as I said earlier, practice as if your life depends on it. You need to also be aware that without practice, you end up going crazy. And it may look like the kind of crazy where they lock you up somewhere. Or it may look like the kind of crazy where you continue to do the same old habitual behaviors, getting the same results every time, expecting something different the next time. That's the legal definition of crazy. So sitting brings all of that here. And it brings it to a place where you have an opportunity to do something with it. And the doing something with it is to do nothing with it. To do nothing with it. When I used to uh, teach uh, primarily uh, Catholic, uh, Christian and Catholic and Jewish uh, students, I used to say to them, you know, in your own teachings, God created the earth. Looked back and said it is good and you've been trying to correct his mistakes ever since you're saying we have this habitual conditioned behavior of having to fix things when in fact as I often say as well it was all designed to work it was designed to work there's nothing you need to do about it except pay attention to it, accept, be present to it. 99.9% of the path to enlightenment has to do with showing up, then staying until you see, until you know, and then moving on to the next. And as the ancient Zen masters used to say to students who asked what happens after enlightenment, they would reply, 10,000 more hours of meditation. Because this mind naturally, that part of it we call ego, is designed to be like a monkey, ever observing and watching the world from a place of defense, from a place of viewing the world out here as some place to be conquered rather than some place to be or to be known. So when we sit and meditate, we need to bring an understanding to the mechanism of meditation. We need to understand, for example, how this ego part of our consciousness literally translates and processes what's going on out here for us. So there's a wonderful Zen story about two Zen students one day sitting down, watching a flag blowing in the wind. The one Zen student said, the wind is blowing the flag. The other Zen student said, no, the flag is moving the wind. (laughs) The Zen master came by and said, neither the flag is moving the wind or the wind moving the flag. It's your mind. It's your mind. The moral of that particular Zen koan has to do with the awakening to the fact, whether you believe it or understand it or not, And much of the truth, if you were listening to the opening dharani, when you heard me say dharma, incomparable, profound and minutely subtle, much of the truth cannot be understood with this, cannot be rationalized with this. So be very careful to dismiss so many truths that probably show up in your life in the course of the day just because it doesn't make sense to you. So here's one of those truths. And one of those truths is that life is really happening in here. We perceive it as happening out here. But when you get into real meditation training and practice, like 38 years of it, you can see that I experience what I call life in here. This is where my experience is. And this word experience was best defined, I think, by a character named Aldous Huxley. Who wrote, "Experience is never what happened to us; experience is what we did with what happened to us." Saying, so we, you know, we tend to have conversations about how life is treating us, and the truth of the matter is that life does not exist apart from us, as if it can treat us in any way or the other. That our experience of life is what we are doing with the circumstances and situations that show up in the course of our living every day. We take those very neutral in many ways experiences and we translate them according to our particular desires, our particular beliefs, our particular opinions, our particular expectations. What I call one's agenda. So when you look at, for example, relationships as I have over the years and created different seminars on them, when you look at relationships, one of the most important questions to ask about a relationship is, what do you bring to the relationship? What am I bringing to the relationship? And that's a relationship with another person or my relationship with my daily living, how I relate with life and its circumstances and situations. And whether you understand it or not, what you bring is an agenda. You bring an agenda which often is referred to as expectations of life. And I also tell my students at the monastery, if you don't know the difference between what you brought with you when you were born and what you've picked up along the way, there are no possibilities. And when you take a look at people's agendas as I've examined them over the years, Their agendas are sum totals of what they've picked up along the way. It certainly isn't anything they brought with them. It is what they've learned and what their conditioning has convinced them about life. And we bring that to the way we see life. We bring that literally our experience is not only determined by that agenda, but what we're permitted to experience is determined by that agenda. And an example that you can see almost immediately is this, if you believe that the knight in shining armor is going to look this way, talk that way, and show up in this condition, chances are the one that you're looking for has probably showed up in front of your life 400 times in the course of the day, and your agenda did not permit you to see him or her, you see. We, the mind or ego, sees only what it is looking for. I want you to think about that. Mind sees only what it's looking for. Only what it's looking for. Another example that I often use over the years is if we took a group group photograph tonight of each of you and I said to you, next month when you come back, it will be blown up and pasted on this wall and you walked in the round, in that room and around that wall, who would you be looking for? You, in that photograph. The mind sees only what it is looking for. And so how it, how it operates is that if what it's looking for is not present, what do you think the experience is for the mind? Fear, anxiety, and stress. That's what shows up. Because ego perceives... A world other than the agenda of the being to be a threat, to be a threat. This is the only way we can explain why two very loving people, deeply respectful of each other, deeply loving in a moment of disagreement, is willing to take the other person's head off. Think about it, think about it. So if we don't know what our agenda is in life, what our expectations are of life, we have very little uh, possibility in really getting to understand those habitual behaviors, which are often referred to as our conditioning in life, which is necessary to understand. Because in Zen, we use the same mechanism to to transform the problem. And the mechanism is like this. Most of what we consider to be real is learned experience. And most of what we learned experientially, we learned by doing it the same way every time. You know how they used to say to you, you're so predictable? You are. Because they know that if they push this button, this is what they'll get from you. You see? Because we have all been conditioned that way. So what is necessary is to know what that behavior is, is to understand this is how I always react, no matter what happens over here or over there. And the way we do it in Zen is by using the same paradigm. That is, we give you a new habit to perfect. We give you a new habit to perfect. And in meditation, the primary habit being perfected by practicing every day is not to react, not to react, to just sit. So when you train in a Zen monastery, you sit for long periods of time called sesshins. And during that long period of time, we guarantee you that within an hour of the many hours that you will be sitting, your body will start to react. And we encourage you strongly, in very creative ways, not to move. Because most of our, even our bodily reactions to things, are learned responses to certain stimuli. So we give you a new behavior to habitually perfect in life. Because this mechanism always operates the same way. Stimulus, response. Stimulus, response. Stimulus, response. Stimulus, response. If you want to know what most people are, they're machines. Push a button, you get that. Push that button, you get that. And spiritual practice, or the aim of any real meditation, is to become aware of my mechanism and to change any part of it that does not kind of, like, a, you know, meet up with my expectation for joy and happiness and love. So as, as I said a moment ago, We experience life internally. Life for me is going on within me. You are simply being who you are in any given moment and doing what you're doing. Now that is not to negate things that people do. That is not to minimize some of the horrors some of us have experienced in our lifetime. But much of our suffering or mental anguish, which is what the Buddha wanted to understand through and through and achieve that, is our, again, own agenda compounding that for us without us even knowing it. Compounding that for us. One of the examples I often use is from my childhood. The uh, reaction of my parents for me being late or doing what I wasn't supposed to do that I thought about on the way home often was much more horrible than what happened, you see. when we bring this misunderstanding or no understanding to how the mind is operating from moment to moment, suffering compounds. So there are several things going on in seated meditation. With the observer's role, we are not only becoming aware of what is showing up in the process of the meditation, but we are, as Dogen said, studying this self becoming intimately familiar with its reactions or responses to stimuli in life, with its various different emotional responses, as well as its psychological responses. And again, when we take an intimate look at it over the period of time, we discover how much it is habitual. We do it that way only because we learn to do it that way. And doing it that way, whatever form it takes, often has this this singular root, if you will, singular reason. And the singular reason for us to react to life often in a way that is painful, by getting angry or resistant, has to do with what we never want to face. And I often talk about stress in this way. This word stress. I remember asking my grandfather many years ago, who grew up in the Depression and before that, and who worked in the coal mines of Pennsylvania. And I forget what the situation was, but it, it caused me to go over to him and ask him, uh, "Grandpa, did you ever, how did you deal with stress in your life when you were younger?" And I remember how he looked at me. He looked at me like I had just asked him whether he was from Mars. And a couple of minutes went by watching him thinking. He said what's that and i explained to him the definition of stress and he said to me no too busy didn't have enough time (laughs) didn't have enough time so much of our understanding of stress again is learned so i tell people that stress is a modern code word it's a code word used in the doctor's office when they can't figure out anything physiological they say you You're dealing with stress, it's stress, but they know something you don't know. What they really mean is you're scared to death about something. What is it? But they're not going to tell you that it's fear that is causing the pain because you won't pay the bill or come back. say. So they call it this very you know medical term stress. but stress is stress is nothing more than ego perceiving the given circumstance or situation in such a way that it generates fear in the being. Now, the fear may be as minimal as just concern about tomorrow's test. How many of you remember going uh, when you were in grade school or high school and the test you never prepared for was coming up the following day and found yourself sick that morning? Found yourself, you know, with maybe such symptoms as stomach problems or diarrhea all of a sudden, you see. When, again, all that was was the stress or fear of failure the following day generating that in the body. There was no real virus or temperature. And somehow I think my parents knew that because you couldn't stay home unless you had 102 fever, (laughs) you see. So that's how they figured that out, if you will. So in understanding how much of our dis-ease... Our dis-ease has to do with our dis-ease about life. The more and more we understand that, the more and more we can not we cannot only eliminate the psychological and emotional effects of stress and anxiety, but we can begin to heal a lot of our physical ailments that we often take for granted as just happening to us, and we have to go get a pill for that, and so forth. Quiet mind, quiet body, quiet body, quiet environment, quiet environment, peace on earth. That's how it works. If you don't find it here, you won't find it here. If you don't find it here, you won't find it anywhere here. And if you don't find it anywhere here, war and poverty and discrimination and injustice will continue that's how it works any questions
1: no, we got all that too thank you, thank you. how do you uh, see your breath going to your navel
0: you just see it going to your navel you just see it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you see your breath when you inhale to hear Okay, so if you see it to there, you can see it to there. Okay? So the seeing, again, or the limitations we experience in seeing, whether it's our breath or what is the answer to the problem in our life, it's the same mechanism operating there. The answer to getting to your navel is the same answer to getting to the answers for your life, it's the same mechanism. Okay. And the same blockage at the same time. So, what is it that prevents you from breathing fully? Is there a plate? Is there? Is there, for example, something going on in your life that you either consciously or unconsciously feel you're not getting fullness from? To breathe down into your navel is to breathe fully. Is to receive the breath fully. Whereas the abdomen expands. This is called the hada. In, in Buddhism it's called and that means the place where the fire is burning the force of life exists here so to breathe into that space is to have the full breath so somewhere there is a emotional and mental blockage often for us when we can't do that where we feel that maybe somewhere in our life we're not able to fully express ourselves or feel fulfilled in so you will find that you'll see that breath there and everywhere when that changes, or vice versa.
1: Could it be lack of experience in meditation?
0: Well, certainly that has, that has something to do with it. But again, if I sit there with a mental obstruction, I can meditate till the cows come home. Yes. And if I don't get to that cause, nothing will move. Nothing will move. So uh, you need to just discover which way it is for you. Okay? Thank you. Great question. Much of our dis-ease, psychological and emotional, as well as physical, is connected to, again, those conditioned behaviors in our life that keep us stuck. Those habitual behaviors that keep us stuck somewhere in our lives keep us feeling limited or unable. Before my daughter goes to sleep tonight and tomorrow morning after she wakes up, she will sit with me and we will recite four things that I've taught her to recite every single day. I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And whenever throughout the course of the day she finds herself getting frustrated trying to do something, I say to her, I, and she repeats the four. And when she gets the capable, I say to her, Capable, you are capable, and she figures it out. I'm saying. Most of us have been taught the opposite. And until we resolve that lesson in life, that breath isn't going to go much further. Seven years ago, they told me I had COPD and that I would have maybe one lung in 10 years from there. I'm breathing better than I ever have in my life. And that's what I told them. I said, No, you don't know what you're talking about. I'll be fine. I said, they didn't know what the real problem was. <laughs> I found out. Any other questions?
1: Hi. I've heard there's some breathing techniques for, for inhaling and exhaling. Should that something be learned or just forget about that and just breathe?
0: I think that uh, it, can be, it can be learned parallel in the practice, but the sitting is going to be the most difficult practice. Uh, but the breathing techniques such as a yogi can teach you, Randa, yogini, or what have you, that you can get from yoga can be helpful. But again, in Zen, we put you in a cushion and leave you there.
2: Like that. Hi. So the idea.
0: Mm, That's only part of it. Once you understand and you are aware of it, you bring reality to it. And you bring reality to it. As I tell my students, here's the reality. You're going to die, and you don't know when. Act accordingly. Then it drops away.
2: let's say, hypothetically, someone has a propensity to think a lot, obsessively, and they're okay with death. And they see that perfectionism, they see that the obsession is just ego. It's just strengthening it. And it falls away, but it keeps going. hmm Does that
0: mean the root is not found? It means the root has not been resolved, yes. Everything has a root cause. So when we pray, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering, it goes on, and the cause of sorrow and suffering, you see. So it's about getting to the root. Most of us just trim the branches and prune the leaves. But if the root problem has never gotten to, the root cause, Nothing changes. Now for the thinker, again, who seriously wants to reform that or transform that, okay, again, hours and hours of meditation is the best thing, but real meditation, where they are being silent in an environment such as a Zendo, such as a Zen training center, where they are learning to just sit still, and the, and the thinking obviously will come up in the meditation. In meditation, you learn how to deal with that in a non-conceptual way, okay? By fully experiencing the suffering that comes from that. Most of the time when people's problems show up, they conceptualize both the problem and the solution, and they try to apply a conceptual approach. In Zen, the practice is... To fully experience, or what some writers such as Pema Chodron refers to as leaning into the fire, rather than running from it or stepping back from it and conceptualizing what's going on, we lean into the experience to where we fully experience. So where the force, if you will, of silence and conversation clash, there is an explosion and what's left is life, new life. That's our approach to it. Okay, so it's not just understanding. Understanding must be coupled with again this precision training as I referred to it, where we really bring the mind to that to that edge of the abyss and then push it over. See. Thank you. Hi. Good to see you again. I was
1: told once that meditation, uh, you begin with your toes and you see your toes relaxing and then move up to each part of your body yeah. on a very methodical, systematic basis.
0: Yeah. And that, that is a method we use. When I talk about scanning the body uh, because of the time uh, we have here, You know, we don't get into that specific, but that is a method. You begin and work your way all the way up to the crown, and by then, or most people before then, find that they are totally relaxed. Because what we are doing, again, is contracting mind, bringing it here, and keeping it here. The only time mind is unpeaceful is when it's unsettled, and when it's unsettled, it's scattered. So, it's the contracting and the keeping it present. And that's a very proven, very good technique to do that. So, I'd keep doing it. Anyone else? First, can ask questions? Yes. With the mind seeing what it wants
1: to, how does one interpret then what we believe to be true? Well,
0: trust yourself, but don't trust anything you think you know. (laughs) Truth is relative because of its relativity, if you will. uh, It's never absolute from this Zen Buddhist perspective. There's no absolute. Everything is impermanent. So when I talk about what I know, That has already changed when I said that, okay? So, true knowledge, as the Japanese say, is kokoro. Kokoro means the heart within, which means true knowledge in the East is experiential, is here, not here. And most people formulate truth into a concept, and most people experience truth as a concept. Not really. When people say, I believe in God, for most people that's a concept. Has there been any real direct experience of that belief? Maybe, maybe not. Most people not, if you will. I mean, unless you have gone into a desert, I think, it's not possible. Okay? So most people's beliefs are conceptual in nature. And in that way should be taken, you know, with at least a willingness to look again. To look again not to hold it so absolute. And, and always examine your perception. Don't be so quick to conclude anything. Uh, when we conclude so quickly, we usually end up suffering. Okay. So this is where even the ancient practice of forgiveness is so essential. When you understand uh, Webster Buddha's definition of forgiveness, he says, to give up as in resentment for so forgiveness is just letting go of my grip on that particular truth if you will that particular sense of absolute and allowing myself then to be able to look again to see again rather than concluding anything from my first first scene. Okay. trust yourself but don't trust anything you think you know When I used to uh, talk regularly at uh, graduation classes in different high schools and some colleges, uh, I usually ended my talk uh, by, first of all, paying respects to all of the teachers, I would say, with due respect to these well-learned teachers who continually tell you that you have been prepared to enter the real world. That is a lie. The, the world that you have been prepared to enter is manufactured, you see. The real world, no one can prepare you for that. You've already been prepared, but you forgot it, you see? So most of what we've learned to be true, be doubtful about. Look again.
1: So in consideration of what you said, because I'm kind of this is my first time coming to a meeting but I've been doing a lead meditation up to this point while I read instead of thinking about what I lack or what's blocked is it appropriate to say I'm grateful for that I can see some of the breath and it's pausing and that there's something else I can reconsider in order to get it to move more deeply instead of looking at myself as lacking wondering when I'll get there or getting into that thought process I felt after hearing what you said and I didn't really get into the thought about it I just allowed it to be there and then come to me and I feel I'm really grateful for having come this far and being really present right now and grateful that if I continue doing the meditation mindful of what you said it will just come to pass on its own and I don't need to force would that be That's correct. That's good. All right. Wow. Awesome. I just wanted to make sure that I was thoughtful to what you said and not getting into okay. I haven't aspired. Don't mess it up. Good as yet. (laughs) Okay. I
0: said it's already correct. (laughs) (laughs) Any more thinking, we'll mess it up. (laughs) Buddhism works. Only like this. The foundation of all the teachings, all beings already are Buddha. Those were his words on the moment of his enlightenment. He realized that the world was already perfect and complete and that all beings already are enlightened. So all beings in this room already possess everything you're trying to possess okay it's already there that's the only foundation that allows for any of this to work so in meditation we are not trying to become Buddhas we are trying we are not trying anything in meditation we are learning how to see our Buddha nature which is there revealing right here right now and we just don't see it because our concepts or our agenda will not permit us to see it, will not permit us to see it, you see. I uh, tell a story about many years ago I had an occasion to be in the South and in the company of real, 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 real McCoy Ku Klux Klanners. and I took that occasion to learn something from them and I proposed the, the million dollar question. Uh, to some of the uh, people in, at this particular place that were ac- actual uh, cluckers, <laughs> if, you, if you will. And uh, I said to them, so why, why do you feel that way about black people? And as the conversation uh, progressed, it came, became very clear to me, because their only answer was, was my papa said this, my grandpapa said this, and it's always been like this, and it's always been like that. As the conversation progressed, it was real clear to me that they were unable to see it differently. No matter what I would have had to say about it, wouldn't have meant anything. They were literally unable. That was a major experience in my life and learning lesson about the power of agenda and concepts in our lives. And a lot of that comes from the fact that when we start to mistrust ourselves. See, my four-year-old is coming close to that day. She's not quite there yet. And that's why she's awesome to observe in how she lives life. She doesn't live life out of concepts. She still lives life out of wonder and out of, you know, discovery, all the ways we used to be and so forth. So she isn't afraid to climb and jump, okay? And I'm like, you know, like that, you see? (laughs) and she's not afraid to do this yet and that yet. So, uh, concept, or what I prefer calling agenda, literally not only determines what we experience, but what we're allowed to see, what we're permitted to see. That's how powerful it operates in our uh, mental process and daily living. And if you notice, the mechanism of concept is movement. It's always coming and going. Through the simple activity of slowing it down and becoming quiet and still, yes, a natural healing and renewing surfaces because conceptual living exclusively literally suppresses that. It's underneath that. So meditation is how we get underneath the stuff to where the real source is. And the way we do that is quiet, it is down. So there is a saying in Zen, when you fully experience something, it disappears. It disappears. So anything that's fully experienced will disappear naturally. Because the only thing that keeps it alive is my concept about it.
1: um the concept of breathing like in, in you know in yoga or in Hindu practice and pranayama do breathing and meditation is, is breathing the breath the
0: movement of breath an important concept in Zen meditation or is it are they two separate things are they they used together or they, you know, how much breath is central breath is uh, central and the way I explain it is like this. If I cut off your food supply, you can live for a few weeks. If I cut off your water supply, you can live for a week or so, let's say. If I cut off your breath, you'll die in a matter of moments. So breath is the, the ancient word for breath was spiritus in the Western world, which was the same word for spirit, like Holy Spirit. Okay, So the same word for breath was the same word for the divine, if you will. And purposefully, that was a direction just as we understand it in Zen and Yoga. That's central. That's the life force. That's what keeps you there, if you will. So the masters say, control the breath, control the mind. Okay? When you can manage your breathing, which is what you're doing as you're meditating, breathing in the manner that you are and exhaling the manner that you are, and keeping your observation on that, that naturally will quiet down the mind. So breath is central. Yes. It's not just a part of it. It's central. Okay? Yeah, the reason I ask is because you keep referring to just just sitting, but you're just sitting, trying not to think, or you're just sitting and you're breathing? You're just sitting, sitting. aware of your breath, Mm -hmm. and observing everything else not trying not to think and not trying to think. So it's kind of like you know, laying down on a beautiful lawn one day and watching in the clear sky the clouds go by. Just watching them do that. Nothing else about it. Nothing to say about it. You're just noticing all of that. Like that. So there is no effort to stop thinking any more than there is an effort to make peace. That comes naturally, when you've cleared away all the obstacles, it's like that, okay? Thank you. As my daughter would say, let me go to the potty now, Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll take a break so you can go to the potty, I'll be here. Through the practice of silence we become aware of our own suffering. The suffering is always there in our minds and in our bodies. Silence allows us to see it, face it, release it. We constantly judge ourselves. Our minds decide what our experience should or should not be relentlessly labeling things good or bad, and demand that our lives conform to our labels. Then, when pain comes into our lives, and it does to every life, we not only suffer it, but we suffer our suffering as well. We add the mind's harsh judgment of pain to our actual experience of it. By practicing silence, we may discover the ways in which we intensify our pain by judging it. Then we have a chance to become less harsh, more forgiving. The suffering created by our minds is stored in our bodies, creating rigid patterns of behavior, blocking the flow of energy within (coughs) us, cramping our beingness. Our harshness and our fears are embodied in our flesh. In silence, we can feel these tendencies harden and allow them to be as they are. They may then uncramp and release, for anything that is not resisted tends of its own accord to unfold and change. By cultivating silence, we can find and release deeper and deeper levels of suffering and so discover once again what is beneath the suffering the natural joy that is already inside us, free to rise and flow into experience. So both in physics and in Zen there is the saying, whatever you resist persists, and you you resist it long enough you will become it. So in silence, as I said before the break, in the practice of meditation, we are learning how to not react. We are learning the difference between doing something about our suffering and being in the moment where the suffering is happening and allowing our presence alone, just being present to the suffering, to transform the suffering. And this is possible, as the writer suggests, that underneath the suffering, whatever that suffering may be for the individual, underneath it for all of us, is this wellspring of wisdom and knowledge, freedom and, and uh, joy and love and peace of mind and body. So that when the obstruction dissolves, and it will dissolve, because whatever is not resisted is fully experienced, and when we fully experience something, it disappears. So when we fully experience our suffering, it disappears naturally, and what is always underneath it is this wellspring of enlightenment, is everything we're looking for. And it will rise naturally to the surface. That is why, again, there is no need to contrive peace. There is no need to uh, strive for it. It's already there. All we need to do is release the obstacles that prevent us from knowing it intimately and personally right here, right now. So as I said also earlier, the techniques used in the seated meditation can be transferred and called upon. In Buddhism we have what we call three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. We understand in modern terms to take refuge in Buddha is to take a kind of trust, to have a trust that again, Everything is designed to work. I am designed to work. To take refuge in my Buddha nature, for example, is to trust myself, is to, as in the Buddha's dying words to his disciples was atadipa, which meant rely on yourself. You are the Dharma. You are the light. Rely on yourself. To take refuge in Dharma is understood two ways. The Dharma being that which, that force that runs the universe, if you will. That ultimate wisdom, that large wisdom, that large knowledge, as well as the teachings themselves. So when in times of trouble or confusion, I take refuge in Dharma, both in the trust that this has all been designed to work out, and also in the teachings which have been well honed and proven to work down through centuries. And last but not least, to take refuge in Sangha, is to take refuge in the community, to take refuge in relationship, to take refuge in love, to find that place in times of trouble, in loving relationships, in my connection with other practitioners, and so forth. So, when we talk about, again, transferring the techniques of meditation, we can take refuge in the cushion, even while we're not in the zendo, so that the world becomes our zendo, and how that uh, manifests itself is again taking the simple steps of meditation practice and applying them. So, in the course of the day, when a circumstance or situation shows up in your day that stimulates stress or anxiety, the first act, the first action of response is to be aware of that to be aware of the stress and where it is located in my body and going on. To stop, so before you do something about it, before you run or you fight, which is the primordial response to anything that is threatening to the being. The primordial response is to fight or flee. So before you either fight or flee, there's something in between fighting and fleeing that you can do. That space in between is where we stop and we hold the suffering of fight or flight in both, if you will, hands and balance it by taking a deep breath and anchoring ourselves in that moment. To just simply pull mind out of the story, because in that moment of stress, what is always present, in fact, what is always present with every emotion is a thought. Therefore, the thought is generating the emotion. And the thought in this case is what I often refer to as the story. Whenever things stressful happen to us or disappointing or, or painful happen to us, the mind immediately creates a story around it. It creates the story and the more and more we indulge the story, it perpetuates or sustains the suffering. So by drawing our attention away from the story, to our breath, centering ourselves here in the Hara, in those moments, taking a deep breath, then exhaling, we are cooling down the fires, the flames of the story, and we continue to do that until we find ourselves settling down. And the third piece to that has to do with what I call taking care of business zen. Taking care of business zen is this, the story is a fabrication of what is going on. So the example I often use is what I call spilt milk. At the dinner table where the family gathers for the evening meal, the young kid suddenly reaches over the table and knocks over the milk container. And what usually happens in most households is a correction or some kind of admonition about doing that and and a story about how much milk is more costly than even gasoline these days. and, and And the child feels bad for what he did. When, in fact, all that is necessary in that moment is to pick up the container and clean the milk. That's all that's really necessary in that moment. And life operates like that usually all the time. Most of the battles we uh, find ourselves in, both internally and around us, are unnecessary. So when I became a member of the parent club, and used to hang out with some mommies occasionally to get some advice because I'm a single parent. Uh, They all, every one of them had this similar mantra and it was pick your battles. Pick your battles. If you want to raise your kids you got to pick your battles. And and, uh, it's a mantra that I never forget, if you will. And that can apply to what we're talking about right now. By stopping and settling the physical reaction to the circumstance or situation, we get a clearer view of whether or not this battle is worth it or not. And in that moment, usually the battle is not worth it. We simply go back to what we were doing. We simply focus on what we are doing. And most people know that from the Zen saying, when you're cutting the carrots, cut the carrots. You see, When you're at the computer, do your job. If you find yourself wrapped up in a story, take a deep breath as you would in meditation, drawing the mind back to what is going on here and now, and stay focused on that. When you find somebody says something to you and your mind shoots off into a suffering story, you take a deep breath and you pull it out of the story, and you focus on what is really here and now. In the psychology of arguments and relationships, You may be surprised or maybe not to hear me tell you that in the psychology of arguments and relationships, what we think we are angry about in the moment is never about what just happened. (coughs) Is never about what just happened. I'm never angry at you for what you did. I'm angry at you because for what you did reawakened a memory from the past that I didn't resolve then and I'm projecting that into the moment. So when I'm angry at you for being late, I'm angry at everybody else who's ever been late for me in my life, you see, and what that said to me or how my mind, again, translated that for me. So this is why the practice of being here now, staying in the present moment, is so essential because when the mind is attempting to understand the suffering that's going on it is like a computer it is looking for the data in the past to in order to understand what it is what's going on in the now if you will but that process is never helpful in fact compound suffering because in order to handle life now we need to handle what's going on now let's say what's going on now So uh, the practice of staying present, the practice of drawing the mind, I compare it to a rope, you know, on an animal and you're trying to bring the animal in. Drawing the mind back to here when it would rather go into the story about what happened, you know. We love stories. That's why the motion picture business is a multi-billion dollar business. We love stories, you know. We love stories. And uh, we, we, the story we love the most is our own. The evidence is at parties when we are ready and a- willing so quickly to tell you how life is treating me you see, and what's going on in my life and you should have seen what I had to deal with yesterday and so forth and so forth. The practice of staying out of the story in the course of the day, which is where the suffering is going on, Drawing my attention back to the present moment and what I'm doing here and now is the practice of mindfulness living. And it begins with, again, being aware that the stress is present and rising, and that takes training that happens on the cushion. I often tell people that 38 years ago, I knew the stress was happening in me after it had taken me over, beaten me up, and left me to die, I see. (laughs) Today, I see it coming 10 miles away. I say. Ten miles away and I'm ready for it. Sometimes. Not all the time. I see. I I thought I had that really down pat until my daughter was born. <laughs> I so so that's the way that works. Staying in the moment is focusing or directing my attention to what is going on now and not the story. Awareness of the stress when it is surfacing begins in the moment that I notice it and apply the breath or breathing technique to uh, disabling or dismantling the mechanism that I often refer to as the fire, putting out the fire that the story is generating and then returning to the here and now where is only experiential and where there is no good or bad, right or wrong, there's just now, now. You cannot conceptualize now. Anything that you talk about what happened now is about what happened, you see. So the mind cannot, this is why it's so, it has such a struggle with the now because it can't talk about it. It can't can't tell you what it is. You see, it can tell you what it experienced in the now, but it can't tell you exactly what it is. So there is this real freedom in the now that, again, the more and more we practice silence, the more and more we become aware of that. And I tell my, I tell my students that the process includes becoming intimately aware when you have found that refuge within you, when you have experienced that peace, It's not enough to just say, oh, I'm peaceful. Become intimately knowledgeable about it. Become so intimately aware of it that you can find refuge in it instantly in any given moment or circumstances. But that only comes, again, like any other relationship. The more time you spend with it, the more you become familiar with it. The more you become familiar with it, the easier it is to find it when you're looking for it. And that is why we meditate from here on every day of our lives for the rest of our lives as if our life depends on it because it does. When do you stop meditating? When you die. You've got my permission. Before then, meditate, meditate, meditate. I often tell my students that before they wrap me up to be burned, my last words will be just that, meditate 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 any final questions
1: that was uh, <clears throat> the concept that we can conceptualize now it, it, that's fascinating if, if you would just touch on that again it, it's
0: yeah that's great yeah <clears throat> the moment I am the moment I attempt to tell you about my now it's already, it's, it's already done it's already gone yeah. it's already gone It's
1: like we can talk about what it's
0: not. Right, but we can't talk about what it is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. When I started teaching about Zen, I used to tell people in order for me to tell you what Zen is, I need to tell you what it's not. Okay? And yeah, you can't say what it is, you can only say what it's not. That's great. Yeah. In fact, when we understand the mechanism of the mind and how it differentiates, how it compartmentalizes things, it knows up by thinking down. It's kind of like, you know, in a photography with the camera, the picture is actually flipped upside down, okay, out here. Right. Well, the mind operates that way. So when you get to a stairway and you you know you, you know you're going up, the mind is actually focused on going down. That's how it knows up. Okay? That's how it knows up. So you can't have, this is why I say to people, you know trying to produce nothing but goodness in your life isn't going to work because you can't have good without bad. You can't have it. it doesn't exist.
1: Okay. So earlier you were uh, talking about how thoughts are what triggers emotions.
0: Thoughts and emotions are like uh, two sides of the same coin, okay?
1: So without thought?
0: Without concept, really. It's more like concept. It's not just a thought. It's a concept, a definition. Right. So in the moment, how I'm experiencing that is being generated by my definitions of that, okay? Right. Right. Thank you. So, you know... Again, if I say, if you really loved me, you would. Well, that would prevents me from knowing you really do love me, you see? And I tell people, when you live in relationships that way, what do you get to do in life? Wait, and you'll wait forever because they're not gonna change, you see, like that. So again, what is often preventing me from knowing life fully, is my concepts of life and what that would look like. Thank you. Hi.
1: All these concepts are just, are learned from family, society Yes. Yes. So it's all basically fabricated. Yes. And then instilled in us. And yeah. And make us think that that's.
0: Yep, and that's how we get you to behave the way we want you to. <laughs> <laughs> that's <all about> control. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's nothing else but control. Mm-hmm. Nothing else but control. No, that's all that it's about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So how does meditation dissolve these concepts?
0: They don't they dissolve the grip we have on them. You know, I have concepts, I have beliefs, and I have opinions. But most people, concepts, beliefs, and opinions have them, and that's different. So it dissolves that relationship where my beliefs have me, I have beliefs, which means that I can pick this one or not pick this one, okay? But most people, beliefs have them, i say. So it's not a dissolving of concepts. It's a dissolving of, if you will, the place we hold concepts, you know, that's what it is. It breaks down our whole idea of what is real. Mm-hmm. And when once we have experienced that, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Can, can I make one comment? Yes,
1: sure. I, I want to see if I have this right. If, if we absent ourselves from the response, and we accept what's going on, I don't do the good and bad and all that. I just It just is. If we do that, isn't part of the human experience and why we're here to enjoy in the body what's pleasurable and what's good? So if we do that, then we have to acknowledge the opposite. So is it the acknowledgement that gives us the calm?
0: No, it's the attachment to our definition of that experience, okay? Or detachment. There's nothing wrong with concepts, and you're right. The, the body is to be experienced. The pleasures that the body creates is natural and to be experienced, okay? That's not the problem. It's not like indulging pleasure, and, and, you know, the Buddha was clearly against living an ascetic type life, you know, that strictness of living and so forth. So it's about, again, whether or not that has me or I have it. See? And that's called attachments. So it's about our attachments, you know, that prevent us from having even any willingness to see the possibility of another way. See? That's what it's about. Thank you. So have fun, but don't make anything special out of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> or as I tell my students who are having a lot of fun, don't worry, that'll pass. <laughs> uh, so
2: Buddhism is a dualist? Pardon me? Is it dualist philosophy? No. That's
0: okay. <laughs>
2: so when you say that you experience things, do you mean that you, your ego has experienced things? Because if experience is the accumulation of memory and the assignment of the sensations that go along with those memories, then you can't have experienced anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, ego is not the enemy. It's learning how to be in relationship with it and use it for the purpose of enlightenment.
2: And you don't identify?
0: don't identify with anything. The moment you identify with anything but yourself, and that cannot be described as we were talking a few moments ago, I can't tell you. I often talk about, if you and I met in a bar possibly, well, maybe not you, I don't know, but if you and I met in a bar possibly and I asked you who you were, you would tell me your name, you may tell me where you live, you might tell me you, you know, degrees you have, you might tell me about all of that stuff in your life. Okay, And none of that's you. None of that shit. And the fact is, is that you can't answer the question. You can't say to me, "This is me, myself, and I." So most of our identities are false. All of our identities are false. Okay.
2: So, so, do you even bother holding a place in concept for what yourself is?
0: You can hold. You can hold it as long as you remember that too will pass. So it's all about, it's about, you know, life is what it is. And what it is is what it is. And sometimes it stinks, and sometimes it doesn't. We don't make anything big out of the stink, and we don't make anything big out of when it's not. See? That's what it is. We realize that everything is of the nature of impermanence. So when I'm having a problem with the stink, my ego wants something other than that. And my ego wants something other than that because it somehow perceives that as a threat to me, okay? And it's that wanting. You know, it's like when you, when you really look at, you know, having suffering in your life and the moment that changes, we'll say having suffering in your life and then you, you become peaceful. Most people think they become peaceful and happy because they got what they wanted no you became peaceful and happy in that moment because you stopped wanting wanting is the cause of suffering so enjoy like what's what's your name patience. Oh, patience 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 yeah were your parents hippies what? were your parents hippies so patience, like patience and I were talking about. Enjoy the pleasurable things, but when your life becomes about enjoying the pleasurable things, you're trapped. That's the trap, okay? So enjoy the pleasurable things and let them go when they go. Ego wants to grab on, it wants to attach, it wants to keep the pleasurable things around and repel the unpleasurable. And that wanting in that moment is what's really causing the suffering.
2: So this is a question I've asked many people. Um, the bodhisattva, they no longer have desire, they no longer have attachment. They feel compassion and understanding, so they want to help others. But they're not attached to the outcome of their help. hmm and every person has to help themselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So their actions don't come from a place of desire. What, what motivates?
0: An awareness of what's so. That's what motivates at that moment. Just that passion.
2: Yeah. At that point, their their ego is just a point of reference, mm-hmm. in space time. Yeah. To, so, yeah. That's a that, good way. Yeah, that's a good way of putting
0: it. So, what is the source? Is an awareness of what's so. And that detachment from the outcome is the key. You know. It's kind of like I maybe I always forget was it Ignatius or Augustine who said, "Love God and do what you want." <laughs> Augustine, love God and do what you want like that thank you I was having that conversation just the other night I can't remember if it was Ignatius or Augustine I get them mixed up any other questions so I'm going to do a little media thing before we say goodnight to each other the 2013-2014 Zen Training Program for Home Practitioners starts in September 14th. Uh, You need to register now. Get into the training. uh, To learn more about what that is, you can go to our website, pinewind.org or thezensociety.org, and it will give you full details. And if you still have more questions, you can click the link, More Questions, and uh, someone will get back to you and answer them. But get in, get into the training. It is a powerful experience, one that you know. If, if it wasn't, I wouldn't stuck with it. Stuck with it for 38 years, because I'm not attached to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you for the privilege of being with you, and for coming out in this heat. Tuesday night
1: meditation.
0: Oh yes, Tuesday night. Come back Tuesday night. We. Where we don't talk about it, we do it. Mindfulness meditation for an hour from 6 to 7 here at Yoga for a Living.
1: Second
0: Saturday in August? Second Saturday. Well, why didn't you tell us? <laughs> <me? laughs> <laughs> Second Saturday in August, if you want to join us for an event, family meditation, we are going to create the opportunity for the family who meditates together, stays together type thing. And from that we hope to also create a teen meditation program so that we can begin to do something about the suffering our children are having that causes them to hurt themselves and others.
1: October Retreat? (laughs) Uh,
0: October Retreat, yes.
1: Uh, Our annual
0: October Retreat uh, will be held at um, St. Marguerite's in Mendham, New Jersey Retreat Center uh, that will be up on the website, too. It's a weekend in a beautiful uh, old English manor-type building on 79 acres of pristine land. And uh, the retreat will be a weekend with me and the other monks uh, where we will take a look at Zen mind, Zen body, and taking charge of your life and getting it together.
1: Uh, October
0: 18th, 19th, and 20th. That's the
1: third Saturday. So we third? won't be having Zen Chat here the third Saturday in October. We'll be having
0: it the following.
1: The following week, which is going to be a special Zen Chat, where, the, where she's going to be doing a special tea ceremony. So that's really not to be not to be, be missed. Mark your calendar. It's amazing.
0: So get on retreat with me. Get into the training with me, and we'll be one happy family and change the world,
1: <laughs>
0: or not. <laughs> good night.
1: Good night. Yes. <laughs>